The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Please, please tell me you're working on a story full of mayhem and scandal. No such luck. Huh. Boy, Morris Lee's going to read Girl Scout Jamboree, big success. This keeps up, we're going to have a one-page city section. Hey, hold up, Chief. Why does the news always have to be bad? Why can't we report on all the good things that happen? Jimmy, you've been sniffing linotype. This is a newspaper. It's either catastrophe or atrophy. Good day, everyone. It's Thursday, October 29th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, coming to you online and on iTunes. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Yes, from catastrophe... Or it's either catastrophe or atrophy, eh, Robert? That's what news reporting seems to be these days. And I understand you're going to be talking about what distinguishes leftists from rightists in the news. Is that basically the theme? Some some of the distinguishing characteristics of leftists, as demonstrated in the writings of some journalists, yes. Well, well from what you've been telling me, I guess I'm going to have my eyes opened on some of this stuff here. For my oh, part, <laughs> but I know you'll be doing that in the first half of the show. In the second half of the show, I'll be taking a look at something that you actually inspired me to take a closer look at with your topic last week, Robert, when you were talking about uh, cultural, um, you know, re- defining what culture is. And it struck me that uh, so much of what is has become part of our culture has incorporated into it what I have to call nothing else but corruption. And I'm going to look at our political culture of corruption and how far it's gone in our um, society here in Canada today and and the repercussions and has it happened before in history. Very interesting topic to take a look at. So thanks well, I look for forward gi- to that, yeah. Yeah, thanks for giving me that one. But we, before we get underway, don't forget, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, visit us at justrightmedia.org, where you can also donate to support what Just Right Media is doing online and elsewhere. Well, Robert, take it away. I'm curious to see what you discovered in terms of this media reaction to the election. Right, Bob. Well, uh, as we know, there are many characteristics for describing a leftist versus a rightist. It's very hard to pin down exactly who is what and how they uh, can normally be described. But in in reading some of the reaction to the election uh, last week, um, I started to think about some of the uh, distinguishing characteristics of uh, mainly leftists in contrast to uh, some rightists. You know, leftists in normal political discourse, uh, they can be arrogant, abrasive, condescending, close-minded, vindictive, hateful, superficial, and intellectually dishonest, if not outright liars. Now, of course, many of these traits can be exhibited by those on the right as well, or even those of any political stripe at any given time. But on the whole, the leftists seem to hog most of these failings to themselves. This is my opinion. Now, I understand that my ascribing such lowly epithets may seem a little condescending, if not downright rude, and I may even be crossing over into that line myself, 
but I'm going to try and substantiate my thesis with examples from two of Canada's leading newspapers. I could have chosen left-wing versus right-wing radio, or left-wing versus right-wing television, but there's a certain permanency about the printed word that makes it ideal for this kind of analysis. Yeah, you can't change it online. (laughs) Exactly. As a matter of fact, that's what I was thinking of because I went back uh, four years to find some some stuff that I'm going to be quoting here today. It's really hard to do on print or radio, I mean uh, TV or radio. Well, that's all all to do with the power of print. We've talked about it before. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the Toronto Star is Canada's largest daily, and that's my source for opinion from the left. It has a decidedly capital L liberal history dating back to its founding in 1892 by striking printers and writers. And in the first half of the last century, it was a prime example of what's called yellow journalism, excelling in scandal mongering and sensationalism. Not much has changed, it seems. Now, in contrast to the star, the National Post, a recent newcomer to uh, newspapers in Canada, is decidedly conservative in its editorial stance. Founded by the noted conservative-thinking Conrad Black, it has sided consistently with conservative causes and political parties, including the Canadian Alliance, and more recently, under new ownership, the Federal Conservative Party and Stephen Harper. Now, I'm going to contrast this Toronto Star's editorial piece on the day following last week's election of the Liberals, led by Justin Trudeau, with the editorials from the National Post on the day following the election of the Conservatives under Stephen Harper, way back in 2011. So you see the contrast here. Mm. I'm going to contrast the winning sides journalists' writings. Yes. So, the contrast... Like, like, uh, like, like there are sore losers, there might also be sore winners. <laughs> ah, you're getting ahead of me. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I mean, sorry. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, oh. Okay, so I'm going to co- contrast the Toronto Star's editorial piece on the day following uh, last week's election. To begin with, the full con- no, actually, I'm going to start with the National Post and end off with a bang. To begin okay. with, the full comment editorial written by National Post columnist John Iveson on the day following Harper's majority win in the 2011 federal election, uh, back in May of 11, I think. Quote, For Stephen Harper's critics, who warned he would announce plans to reintroduce the death penalty in two-tiered health care as soon as he won a majority, Tuesday's press conference must have been a huge disappointment. The Prime Minister is now secure in his post for the next four years or so and could have afforded the mass to slip on his hidden agenda, if there was one. Yet, he has the very essence of a strong, stable national government he has promised every day for the last month. On health care, he said he supports Canada's system of universal public health care. He confirmed his election pledge to increase spending by 6% a year. Quote, we do not want to sit down as we renegotiate to look at how we ensure a better uh, and clearer results and outcomes, unquote, he said. There was room for experimentation, but he said his government would not question the fundamentals of the universal public system, unquote. So so far, John Iveson hasn't spilled any ink on Mr. Harper's losing rival, Michael Ignatieff. Nor has he taken this opportunity to take any pot shots at the Liberal Party, being relegated to third-party status by electing only 34 MPs. I think that was the first time in Canadian history that the Mm -hmm. Liberals uh, achieved such uh, ignominy. In fact, nowhere in the article is Mr. Ignatieff or the Liberal Party, nor the NDP, who gained status as official opposition, mentioned. It is unnecessary to continue, I think, with the opinion piece of uh, Iveson, 
since I believe I have made the point that the conservative paper took no pot shots at the losers. You can go online and find that particular uh, piece of Ibison back in May of 11, just to mm-hmm. see that there's nothing in there about Ignatiev or NDP or any pot shots. It took the high road and focused on the winner and looked ahead at what Mr. Harper might do with his majority. That's it. By, uh, but there's one paragraph I have to relate, though. <laughs> Listen from, to from, from that earlier coverage, you mean? From, from the same article by Iveson. Oh, okay. Quote, Back in 2006, the Prime Minister visited New York and spoke to the high powerful, a high-powered Council of Foreign Relations. After an impressive performance, former Canadian ambassador to the U.S., Alan Gottlieb, told me how impressed he had been. Quote, he reminded me of Pierre Trudeau. You could see the intellect work, he said. so here we have uh, just consider here we have the former Canadian ambassador to the United States comparing Stephen Harper to Pierre Elliott Trudeau I wonder if Mr. Gottlieb could make the same comparison today with Trudeau's son Justin now such um, since Iveson's article was pretty tame let's take a look at another article from the National Post on the same day in 2011 now this one is from uh, Tamsin McMahon a reporter at the Post but has since written for uh, McLean's and the Globe and Mail the piece was headlined, Ignatiev Steps Down as Liberal Leader, and you can find this online. Perhaps here we will see some conservative paper take uh, personal attacks at Mr. Ignatiev. She writes, quote, With his party's disastrous third-place finish and his unable to win his own seat in Toronto, Liberal Leader Michael Ignatiev ended his brief reign as party leader this morning, saying his time in Canadian politics is over. The only thing Canadians like less than a loser is a sore loser, he told a morning press conference. I go out of Canadian politics with my head held high. Mr. Ignatiev said he will work out with party officials the best time to leave and has asked Deputy Minister Ralph Goodale to convene a meeting of the Liberal Caucus to choose an interim leader with a party leadership convention expected in the fall. He blamed negative attack ads that questioned his commitment to the country after a long-tenured out of Canada, working in the UK and the US, for his party's historic defeat on Monday night. There is no question they had an impact, he said. I had a very large square put around my neck. My attachment to the country, my patriotism, was unquestioned. Was questioned. Unquote. So, so far, we see from McMahon, the reporter refraining from insult. She refers to the leader of the opposition as Mr. Ignatiev, and not simply the more rude Ignatiev. She quotes Mr. Ignatiev, letting us read in his own words his thoughts at the moment of defeat. She does not edit out any of the accusations made against the Conservative Party, that it was the effect, uh, for example, of the negative attack ads, which were a contributing factor to his loss. She continues later in the article with this, quote, The Liberals saw their worst election result in the party history, losing their hold on Atlantic Canada and Toronto, and falling behind the New Democrats with just 34 seats, fewer than half of their previous historic loss in 2008. Mr. Ignatiev was grappling with a loss in his Etobicoke Lakeshore riding to Bernard Trottier, a manager at IBM and past president of the local conservative riding association. It was a devastating fall from grace for the Harvard intellectual and respected journalist 10 days before his 64th birthday. Mr. Ignatiev returned to Canada in 2005 in hopes of rebuilding a party still plagued by sponsorship scandal, unquote. So, her reporting on the dramatic loss of the Liberals was without emotion. She presented the facts. 
She ends off by properly identifying Mr. Ignatiev as a Harvard intellectual and a respected journalist. These two opinion pieces, uh, from McMahon and Iveson, uh, printed in a conservative paper the day after a conservative victory, should be seen, I think, as exemplars for the way reporting of facts and presenting of opinion by journalists should be on the win of their candidate and the loss of their opponent. The facts are reported, the focus is on the road ahead, and the losing candidate is treated with respect. An opinion from Canada's leading liberal newspaper, the Toronto Star, is an example of the exact opposite. It appeared in the opinion-slash-editorial section of the paper, unsigned, so I take it as the official position of the paper. Yes. Yeah, reading it, as I will in a moment, <clears throat> must have been what Russians experienced when they read Pravda in the old Soviet <laughs> Union. You know, okay. Everyone knew that what they were reading was full of lies, half-truths, innuendo, and deceptions. Everyone knew that they were reading... Um, they had to read it, rather, as if the exact opposite were true, because it often was. Yeah, you, even had, to do, you even had to do more than just read between the lines. You had to re read around them, over them, under them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it all, you know, this article also must um, have been uh, what the soldiers fighting, in the, Jap uh, fighting the Japanese in, in World War II felt as they listened to Tokyo Rose spout propaganda over the radio. Or the soldiers and civilians of Europe as they listen to Axis Sally. Yes. Uh, you'll know you'll know what I mean when I get to the article. But uh, with Axis Sally in mind, let's just take a little break. This is Berlin, Betty. Tonight, I am pleased to have as my guest one of your own countrymen, who has realized the futility of continuing to resist the fatherland. I hope you take this message to heart, so that we can all once again live in peace. And now here is Corporal Peter Newkirk of the Royal Air Force. <clears throat> Tonight, I would like to ask each of my comrades to lay down his gun and surrender. I think I can best illustrate my reasons for asking this by reminding you of a story I learned when I was a wee bit of a lad in London. <laughs> It's the story of Mama Bear and Papa Bear. <laughs> and I say that to believe we can win this war is as much a fairy tale as the free bears. Thank you, Corporal Newkirk. And I hope your countrymen are as wise and as patriotic as you are. And now, good night from Berlin, Betty. That was very good, Newkirk. <coughs> All right. I don't think I could be as convincing as you if me heart wasn't in it. My heart is in it. But I thought they were old in your family. I have no family. That is our way of testing. I must be quite sure that the prisoner is sincere. And the kiss? That was from the Fuhrer. Greetings, G.I.s. This is your favorite enemy, Axis Annie, over Radio Berlin. I've got a very special show for you today, fellows. So stand by, all you handsome losers. <laughs> 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 
I'll make puncher in the nose myself. Get it, volunteer. Missions against Germany. Here's a little advice from Axis Annie. When you bail out, don't fight. Play it smart. Give up. Germany observes the Geneva Convention. But don't take my word for it. Here's our first guest, Colonel Robert Hogan, from Bridgeport, Connecticut. <laughs> Colonel Hogan, how long have you been a prisoner of war? A couple of years. What can you tell us about the Luftstahlak where you are? Yeah, that's a nice place to be captured, but I wouldn't want to live here. You're joking, of course. Yes, of course. Actually, the commandant of the camp is a very intelligent man and does everything possible to make it more comfortable for us. In fact, with men like him, I can see where you're going to win the war. Colonel, in your experience, have the German authorities always observed the Geneva Convention? Well, I admit I was a little surprised, but uh, they are fair and humane with the prisoners at all times. Thank you, Colonel Hogan. Lovely food, beautiful accommodation. You couldn't ask for anything better. <laughs> well, you, well, you could ask, but it wouldn't help. Do you have any complaints? Well, just one. No birds. Birds. Uh, Frau lines, uh, ladies, you know. Oh yes, of course. But if you're happy in your Stalag, is feminine company so important to you? What are you doing after the broadcast, sweetheart? <laughs> Have you ever witnessed any mistreatment of prisoners of war? Only once. It happened to me. You see, I am a cook, and I was making a tournoi de Rossini. They confiscated my mushrooms. Any reason? Jealousy. I would hardly call that inhuman treatment. You would if you were a Frenchman. <laughs> the Toronto Star editorial reads as follows. Quote, Chairs broke out across the land as Canadian voters chased Stephen Harper's arrogant conservatives from office on Monday night in a richly deserved rebuke after years of corrosive misgovernance. Thus ends a dismal, divisive era in our political history. Okay, let's just stop it right there for a moment. First of all, I didn't hear any cheers, did you, Bob? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there were some in rented halls by the winning candidates of all parties, but across the land, really? This wasn't Henderson scoring the winning goal. This, this was a Canadian election, the results of which were coming down, by the way, at the same time the Toronto Blue Jays were beating the pants off the Kansas City Royals in Game 3 of the Championship Series. <laughs> I wonder if the staff at the Toronto Star were hearing the cheering of 50,000 fans in the Rogers <laughs> Centre just four blocks away. That's funny. The writer I, I, of the piece... Yeah, the, <laughs> of, co of course there would be pockets of people cheering in, 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 oh, the, in the true course. jubilant sense. But I don't, I don't... Canadians generally across the country uh, might not even have been aware of the election. <laughs> oh, you know it. You know it for a fact. I think perhaps the response was meh. But anyway... Yeah. The writer of the piece didn't wait to lay into the Prime Minister, though, did he? In the very first sentence, he takes a shot, calling his party arrogant and richly deserving of a rebuke after years of what he calls misgovernance. Misgovernance? Canada was the only nation to be spared an economic downturn, downturn during the economic downturn over the last five years, thanks in part to the uh, moderately good governance of the Conservative government, I would have to say, led by Stephen Harper. So the misgovernance is one of those lies we have to gloss over if we're ever to come to the pravda of the matter. Or, 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 or is the misgovernance a matter of their expectations versus what they wanted Harper to do? 
You right. know it. You yeah. know it. It's misgoverned according to a liberal. It's misgoverned according to a left because they didn't get what they want. But it's not misgovernance. If you think about what a government should do, um, well, of course, the conservatives aren't doing it <laughs> or, or didn't do it. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Not from, well, not from your own brick wall, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, not from our perspective, but from the general point of view, if the government is going to be in there making sure that we have a strong economy, a thing that's that both you and I think that they should get out of, but if you think that, then they did okay. All right, we didn't have the massive problems that the United States or Western Europe or the rest of the world had. We 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 weathered that so-called downfall and recession very well. But anyway, let's continue with the article. Quote, Confounding the pundits and pollsters, Justin Trudeau's liberals have pulled off a remarkable political comeback after spending the past decade in the political wilderness. The liberals have surged from third place to earn a commanding mandate to chart a more progressive direction for Canada. It's one for the record books. This is Trudeau mania too, nothing less. Surfing a wave of revulsion at Harper's spiteful governing style. <laughs> Here we go again. Uh, I tell Robert, Robert, what you just read there is is part of what I'll be talking about too. You'll hear the same kind of talk about Harper in, in a complete vacuum. Yep. Yep. So here we go again, just like the first paragraph. A wave of revulsion at Harper's spiteful governing style. Note how they drop any pretense of respect by not calling him Mr. Harper or Prime Minister Harper. Just Harper. You can almost cut yeah, through you know, the hatred. I, I really never thought about it so deeply before in that sense, so, or so, so significantly, symbolically. Um, I think you have a point there, Robert. It really says a lot. Well, remember when that page in Parliament stood up with a stop sign that said, Stop Harper. The absolute height of disrespect for Parliament, for the Commons, for Canada, for the Prime Minister. Uh, it was a it was a, a middle finger this, this young girl was giving everybody by standing up saying, Stop Harper. Talk yes. about rude. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I actually came across a stop sign the other day uh, walking on the sidewalk, and it uh, it was a real stop sign, and somebody had put the word Harper in a printed sticker under the word stop. Yeah. I took I, a picture of it. you got to see it. Yeah, <laughs> I think I remember seeing it myself. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you can almost cut through the hatred in that article with a knife, could you? And the naked oh, yeah. emotion. The Conservatives retained, by the way, 99 of their seats. Did the star think that the country felt a wave of revulsion at the Ignatiev liberals when they were trounced in 11, retaining only 34 seats? Contrary to what the star is trying to tell us, the Conservatives may have lost, but it was no routing. There was no wave of revulsion. And from where I sit, there was no spiteful governing style. If there were a spiteful governing style, the Conservatives should have sold off the CBC. But that opportunity is gone forever. Let's continue with the article. From, quote, from, um, far from being just not ready, Trudeau showed himself to be a formidable, disciplined campaigner with the charisma of his father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and the retail political touch of his maternal grandfather, James Sinclair, a one-time liberal minister from the Vancouver area. He embodies healthy, generational change and shares the widespread public yearning for something better than the status quo. 
unquote. Now, I want to point out here that there's only one thing Mr. Trudeau had going for him when he won this election. His name. Nothing else. Even the star had to bring in Mr. Trudeau's heritage, lacking anything substantial to report on. I do admit, though, you know, I thought Justin Trudeau performed well in the Monk debate. He certainly is youthful-looking. But aside from these things, he's a political neophyte with a, a very large political machine backing him up. You know, anybody, yeah. any part-time <clears throat> drama teacher with those looks could have been plunked into that role as long <laughs> as they had a, a good name behind them and a big machine, and they would have won. That's my opinion. Anyway, for, anyway, from the editorial. Quote, Throughout the campaign, Trudeau spoke out fiercely and repeatedly for human rights when the conservatives were trying to make cheap political gains by stoking unwarranted fears about terrorism, by hounding vulnerable niqab-wearing Muslim women, and by abandoning desperate Syrian refugees to their fate. Unquote. It's typical by the way, for the start to downplay terrorism yes, and the threat to is of Islam in this country, or Islamism, even in the face of the Toronto 18, honor killings and the shootings of Canadian soldiers in Ottawa and Quebec. Yep, nothing to see here, folks. Move along, move along. No terrorism. No, no Nothing to worry about here. Harper's just blowing smoke. Quote, Canada urgently needs a course correction after nearly a decade of a Harper government that was relentlessly relentlessly divisive, scandal-ridden, contemptuous of national institutions, ambitious only in its desire to hobble government, and socially regressive. It hit rock bottom with Harper's Hail Mary appearance at a weekend Ford Nation rally in Etobicoke, organized by Rob Ford, Toronto's toxic former mayor and his brother Doug. Okay. I'll skip over the usual vindictive stuff that's in that sentence and say that the conservative government uh, defeat, um, they defeated, by the way, the conservative government under Harper, Mr. Harper, Prime Minister Harper, a motion to reopen the legislation which allowed gays in Canada uh, to marry, effectively reaffirming the legislation which was brought in by the preceding Liberal government. How is that for socially regressive? They didn't touch it. They didn't take that opportunity to be to be vindictive. They went along with the Supreme Court. They went along with the Liberal government's um, motion and uh, law from the previous government. And, and, and regarding Rob and Doug Ford, both of those guys continued to be elected and re-elected by the voters of Toronto, much to the dismay of the Liberal star. You know, they're very popular figures. They still are very popular figures. Yes, indeed they are, and and there's been a lot of talk in the news about that lately since uh, Rob Ford's uh, aide in the past has just released a book on him, and despite Rob Ford's problems, boy, there's a lot of positive things about Rob Ford. There are, you know, I mean, hey, (laughs) there's a lot of unpositive things or negative things about the guy, too. We we talked about a lot of these on past shows, of course. Oh, sure, but to call him toxic? I don't think so. Anyway, let's continue with uh, the Toronto Star's editorial. Quote, Harper has attainted the conservative brand by arrogantly concentrating power in his own hands, cynically stacking the Senate with unfit cronies, presiding over a prime minister's office that schemed to pull the wool over the public's eyes, treating Parliament and the Supreme Court with contempt, 
demonizing any and all critics, bringing in draconian anti-terrorism and crime legislation, and by waging political warfare on the backs of minorities. It's a sorry legacy. And I think that's just about enough of that Toronto Star editorial that I'm going to be talking about here. That's not the full one, by the way, but you can find it online. Just go search for the day after the election. Well, I get week. the point. <laughs> yeah. Now, compare if I want that. to hear a lot of name-calling, I'll just go online and check it out. Yeah, compare that to the National Post one. You know, everything in that paragraph, that last paragraph, is the ramblings of a petulant left-winger who cannot win gracefully. The Harper le- legacy wasn't perfect by any means. I mean, you and I tore into the, the, the conservatives on several occasions, and quite rightly so. By, by no means do they embody the kind of government that you and I um, would like to see Canada. No, no, it's, it's, but it's, like, it's like I've always said, you know, hate the guy for the right reasons. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and like him for the right reasons. But what are those reasons? It never comes up. The reason is Harper, and I can't deal with that. I'm sorry. That doesn't yeah. tell me anything. I can Harper what? Harper, like you, you already pointed out, three or four things that all those people would agree with. Oh, sure. That, yeah. that Harper supported, you know. But, you know. but rather than tear down the man in his defeat, the Toronto Star should have taken a page from the National Post of four years ago and praised a prime minister for his service to the country and focused on the agenda of the new prime minister. That's what I would like to have read. You know, thank you, Mr. Harper, for your service. You know, we know we disagreed with you in the past. Now let's talk about what Justin Trudeau is going to be doing in the future. That would have been the right thing to do. You know, instead, as is typical with the left, and this is what this uh, little um, rant of mine is all about here today, is trying to characterize the left, Um, they choose to be petty and vindictive. They prove that the left has no mind for decorum or grace. And this is just one comparison of the stereotypical characteristics of the left versus the right in style, in manner, and in maturity. The left once again excels in childish deceit and attacks, while the right, as is typical, I think, of the right, comports itself with dignity. And like I said, Bob, I could have done this um, comparison with um, various talk show hosts. Mm -hmm. Here in London, we have liberal and conservative talk show hosts. I could say the same thing. But you know something? Even the liberal talk show hosts here in London would not have come out with that kind of... um, uh, a hatred for Stephen Harper and the Conservatives. Not, not even I would not have imagined it. But the Toronto Star is so far out to lunch on this particular issue that well, I just sure. had to say the, the something. The paper's more it. officially liberal than the others are officially liberal. You know. Well, like I said, it is actually a capital L liberal paper. Oh yes, that's what I mean. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, Bob, what do you got for us today? Well, coming up after this next break, we'll be talking about our political culture of corruption and how we got from where we should be to where we are today. We'll be back after this. You people and 62 million other Americans are listening to me right now because less than 3% of you people read books. Because less than 15% of you read newspapers. Because the only truth you know is what you get over this tube. Right now, there is a whole, an entire generation that never knew anything that didn't come out of this tube. And when the 12th largest company in the world controls the most awesome damn propaganda force in the whole godless world, who knows what will be peddled for truth on this network. So you listen to me. 
Listen to me. Television is not the truth. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. So if you want the truth, go to God. Go to your gurus. Go to yourselves. Because that's the only place you're ever going to find any real truth. But man, you're never going to get any truth from us. We'll tell you anything you want to hear. We lie like hell. We'll tell you any sh** you want to hear. Two of the greatest problems in history are how to account for the rise of Rome and how to account for her fall. We may come nearer to understanding the truth if we remember that the fall of Rome, like her rise, had not one cause but many, and was not an event but a process spread over 300 years. Some nations have not lasted as long as Rome fell. When the when my father was dying, I spoke to the gods, saying, I'm not like my father, and if I'm to be crowned Caesar, I will change all he did. I offered them my life, and told them if it was not for the good of Rome that I be Caesar, then let me be killed. But you see, I'm alive. <laughs> and Caesar. <laughs> now. I wish to see Rome once more the city of light, gaiety, of beauty, and strength. We will have games. The people of the city will be fed. You and your eastern provinces will send us twice the grain they have been sending. The taxes on them will be doubled. My Lord Caesar, this cannot be done. We have famine, not only in our provinces of Syria and Egypt, but also in Armenia, Cappadocia, Arabia. In the whole eastern half of the Roman Empire, people are dying of hunger. When the word spread that you had sent for us, there was joy and hope. Our people said, Rome cannot let us die. Our young Caesar will send us help. If we carry out these orders, we risk having the entire East rise up against Rome. You will tell your provinces, Egypt, Syria, the entire eastern half of the empire, that if there is the least resistance to my orders, I will destroy them. That, of course, was from the three-hour 1964 epic, The Fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, if Caesar wanted to double taxes in the East during a time of famine. <laughs> a famine, I think, Robert, that itself was a result of Rome's declining stature caused by all the internal uh, corruption that was going on in its Senate. And in threatening the eastern part of the Roman alliance with destruction, <laughs> you know, if they resisted Caesar's orders, as he threatened to do, he effectively told them that they'd be destroyed either way you look at it, really, because <laughs> wouldn't the doubling of taxes have had the same effect? And so you can see how Rome 
backed itself into a corner. Now what I found interesting was what the narrator in that clip said. The fall of Rome, like her rise, had not one cause but many and was not an event but a process spread over 300 years. Some nations have not lasted as long as Rome fell, says the narrator. Well, even today in 2015, both Canada and the United States would fall into that category, not having been in existence as long as it took Rome to fall. Think about that, Robert. Yeah, that's amazing. It gives, about, yeah. it gives one pause in the sense of, of perspective. And it also serves as a historical reminder of what can happen to a great civilization when its citizens and governors succumb to corruption as a way of life. And that's what I want to address, our political culture of corruption. That's the only term I can think of for it. It's difficult to fully comprehend or appreciate the degree to which our governments have increasingly become corrupt. I mean... um, how can I put it? I, you know, I hear many people talk about it and complain about corruption on various talk shows and the like, but even so, their outrage and frustrations uh, don't even come close to the magnitude of the real crisis of corruption. A crisis that's no longer really a crisis, but a culture. I mean, we've passed crisis point in some sense. From entitlement to title. <laughs> Everyone wants to be king or emperor. And corruption is a slow motion process. I think that's one of the keys. It is not totally destructive all the time, but partially destructive. The problem in politics is that one man's idea of corruption is another man's idea of the ideal. And that's the problem with left and right, too, isn't it, Robert? You know, it is. And, and I've seen corruption in all, all levels of government in this country, from the lowliest uh, school board all the way up to the federal government. It's, um, you know something, though, Bob? It's not as bad as a lot of other countries, and I think we rank low on the corruption scales that you might find on the line. I would agree with that, Robert. I'm glad you put that point in there. But, boy, are we heading fast in the, ro- in the wrong direction in some departments. A, yep, we're in the process. For example, I have to conclude, um, you know, that in the greater sense, Ontario's public teachers' unions think that their monopoly on the field of education is the ideal arrangement, right? They wouldn't see that as corrupt. I personally wouldn't call this arrangement, I, 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 sorry, I would not only call this arrangement corrupt, but if I had my way, I'd declare it downright illegal and criminal. And Wynne's liberal government here in Ontario represents perhaps a new pinnacle of corruption, the new pinnacle being how openly and brazen it is in this regard. You know what I'm saying? Like They, they do it almost in the open as if, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It's true. And, you know, recently all the fuss has been about them paying the teachers' union a million dollars for the union costs related to negotiations. And I want to thank you for putting me on to this article from Kelly McParland out of the National Post on October 23rd, in which he says, corrupt, or the headline reads, corrupt is the word to describe Ontario government's ties to teachers' unions. And he begins by saying, Corruption is a strong word which we don't often use in Canada when it comes to politics. It infers a blatant disregard for honesty, ethics, or principle. But it's the word that springs to mind when you contemplate the insidious relationship between Ontario, uh, Ontario's Liberal government and the teachers' unions. How else to describe it? Education Minister Liz Sandals asked when she, or asked if she'd demanded receipts to justify a $2.5 million paid to the unions for high school French and Catholic teachers. Uh, she offered a reply that fairly drips with contempt. Quote, you don't need to see every bill when you're doing an estimate of costs. I don't ask. End quote. <laughs> 
Wynn seems to have a peculiar blind spot when it comes to political integrity. And Dalton McGinty took pride in his self-declared status as, quote, the education premier. He ensured union peace by approving generous pay raises and juicy contracts while borrow, borrowing money at record rates. Wynn has carried on that tradition. It's dark, insidious, and if it's not technically illegal, he writes, it should be. Both sides understand the relationship and put on a show of contrariness when required. What about Ontarians? Government mistakes have cost them plenty. Think power plants, electricity costs, smart meters, Mars, e-health, welfare software. Yet no one sends them a check in the mail to make up for it. Why are the unions special? Oh yeah, because they have this corrupt relationship with the Liberals. It ought to end. They're not fooling anyone. And that's a national post. And I, you know, I read that, and I, th I think, yes, corruption is a strong word, and thanks to that very fact, one must be diligent and careful in its use. Use it too much, and it loses its effect of moral judgment, which is what a charge of corruption usually is in the political field. One of the reasons I think people are reluctant to use that word is for fear of getting sued or something if the word becomes associated with any particular individual's actions or inactions. The word corruption doesn't merely infer uh, doesn't merely infer blatant disregard for honesty, ethics, or principle. It literally means dishonest and lack of integrity and open to bribery, etc. You know, we hear about the word corrupt can be used in so many contexts to corrupt computer files, corrupt officials, corrupt politicians, corrupt business practices. But that has to be all against some kind of standard. And in fact, Robert, the last time that I think we openly used the words corruption on any of our index headlines for our show was with the Elgin Middlesex detention uh, situation when we featured Kevin Egan and a couple of former EMDC prisoners on the show. And also when we had Mark Vandermas and Gary McHale join us over all the corruption that was going on in Caledonia, which I'm sure a number of people can still, uh, or are still living by the consequences of that today. So I, <laughs> I know you remember those good old days. Well, yeah, you know, when I think of the word corruption, now I think most people think that it's self-serving. In other words, somebody is getting a dollar that they shouldn't be getting. I look at the word corruption as being a blemish. A, a black mark, a, a straying from the, the right path. Um, that's what corruption means to me. It means unprincipled. I agree. I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. And yeah, and you know something else? When you're talking there, I, I, th I was thinking of one thing. Nixon what? and Watergate. Perhaps what um, historians would think of being the pinnacle of corruption, right? But you know something? If that had happened today... Or if that had happened to a Democratic president, you know what the response would have been? Oh, sure, I bugged my opponent's office. So what? I wanted to find out what they had to say. What's the big deal? Let's move on. What's the next question? Yeah, right, exactly. Yep. Well, what's the problem? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, you, you make a good point. Corrupt isn't necessarily the same as criminal, but the two are certainly often synonymous. Um, you know, corrupt, I think, partially in the way you were talking about it, too, it means dysfunctional. Like, you can have a corrupt file on your computer, and mm -hmm. one small corruption can cause the whole system to collapse. Yeah. Whereas, occasionally, a larger corruption, strangely enough, might not affect the operation of your computer in any discernible way. It depends on which department in your computer the corruption happens. And, uh, now, remember, computer viruses are not corrupt files. 
people think they are. They actually do what they were intended to do, to corrupt your computer. But the people who create those damn things, those viruses, they're the corruption in the chain, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and even there, you have to have a standard by which to judge a virus creator as being corrupt. And I think in the broader sense, a culture of corruption is derived from a culture of entitlement, of an entitlement not to freedom, but to the productivity of others without their consent. And of course, when, when I say corrupt as against what standard, I mean as against the standard of freedom, because there are no other standards. Just as in economics, the only way you can really determine the two, true price or of a cost of a service or a commodity is on a free market, so too in politics, freedom is the only way to allow individual citizens to self-govern until a conflict of some sort arises that necess necessitates the intervention of government. We have to remember that government is a gun. Everything we do with government as the instigator is being done at the point of a gun. And the moral implications are no different with government than they would be with you or me doing it, Robert, walking down the street with our six-gun pistols hand in hand. You know, injustice and corruption would become the rule, while the rule of law morphs into a law of rules. Rules made by those who claim a superiority of rights based on numbers, group rights, groupism, not individualism. Group rights are illusionary and accrue only to the leaders of the group. The rest of the group, as individuals, of course, has no rights in the true meaning of the word. You know, one way you can separate the concept of a Western culture as a, against that of other cultures like that of Eastern Europe, Russia, has been in the past and perhaps might not be so much longer, but it was the corruption standard. You know, everything, just in Russia, just about everything is corrupt. Fraud, misrepresentation, use of force to hold a position. And of course there, what do we mean when we say corrupt? Because that might be perfectly normal for Russia. But for us, those of us who want to live in a free society, corrupt means as opposed to the standards required to maintain life, liberty, and property. Corrupt as opposed to reality, reason, self, and consent. You know, the, the entire way, for example, that Hydro One is set up would, in any world concerned with basic justice, be considered corrupt and made illegal. Witness the recent Pan Am Games held in Ontario. Pure corruption of governance, that's for sure, from top to bottom. And all brought in on budget, by the way. Did you hear that, Robert? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. All that corruption and on budget. I mean, we've been talking about crony politics and gr crony business practices, you know, everything from Uber and all the rest. Um, we see now in, in, in Ontario the whole idea of, of the government taking over the marketplace through their uh, College of Trades. You know, Bob? Yeah. If the Pan Am Games came in on budget, that means they must have had a contingency fund for corruption. Well... Yeah, they knew what they were going <laughs> to miss. They planned spend. it. Right. Yeah, they planned it. <laughs> but anyways, you can go on, on and on. So in conclusion, I would just say that a society that suffers from crime is not necessarily a corrupt society. The individuals who commit the crimes are the corrupt ones. But a society that tolerates, endorses, and legalizes such crime is a corrupt society. It's a society without justice. And, you know, as... as Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever so often reminds us, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, what we increasingly have today is not government, but a gang of thugs masquerading as a government, and that is not government. And I think that's the way it was some 2,000 years ago. We're in command now, Livius. Rome is ours. Take the throne. Be Caesar. Gaius Metellus Livius, the people are asking for you. The empire is yours, Livius. 
You would not find me suitable. Because my first official act would be to have you all crucified. Two million dinars for the throne of Rome. Two million dinars for the throne. Two million five hundred thousand dinars. Two million seven hundred and fifty thousand dinars. Two million eight hundred thousand. Two million nine hundred thousand. Emperor of the greatest empire of history. From Britain to Egypt. Ruler of the world. Oh, much more. Three million dinars for the throne in the empire of Rome. This was the beginning of the fall of the Roman Empire. A great civilization is not conquered from without until it has destroyed itself from within. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it! Is that clear? You think you've merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back! It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity, it is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multi-dollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? You get up on your little 21-inch screen and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. What do you think the Russians talk about in their councils of state? Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, minimax solutions, and compute the price-cost probabilities of their transactions and investments, just like we do. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. 
The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. And our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world in which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock. All necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. Now that audio bite, Robert, was again from the farcical black comedy film Network <laughs> with actor Ned Beatty playing it to the hilt as a tyrannical tycoon of the network giving his lecture on what he called the dominion of dollars. You know, there are many out-of-context truths in what he said, particularly about the business or, or end of things or trade as being mankind's activity since he, quote, crawled out of the slime. But I strongly disagree with his assertion that we no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies. C can you accept that? <laughs> hmm. Uh, we're no longer a nation of, of that kind of a thing? I don't know. The whole world. No, we no longer have nations and ideologies. Well, I gave it some thought. And, yeah. you know, even in speaking about an international system of currency when he was talking there, currency that, by the way, is created by nations themselves, <laughs> the international implies nations, not a college of corporations, like he would say, or a college of trades, like Wynne would say. But pick up any day's newspaper and just look at the world situation, and you'll know that this imaginary nationless and ideology-free world simply doesn't exist, nor could such a world exist, nor would you want such a world. It's a contradiction. Reality does not permit contradictions. A contradiction, even if not perceived or understood, represents a corruption, like I was talking about before, in thought and in thinking. And as my chosen demonstration of that point today, I draw your attention to the following ar article, which is very similar to the one you read from the Star, Robert. This is by Eric Shepard in our London called, uh, from, from, from his column called uh, From the Ground Up, October 22nd, with the headline, More Work to Be Done. And just listen to what he says here. After a marathon campaign, Canada has elected a new government and Stephen Harper is no longer Prime Minister. For many, it's the first time in our political lives without the Conservative Party in power. For those who felt the sting of Harper's war of ideology, take a moment to celebrate, but don't rest easy, there's work to be done. Regime change is a good start, but to solve the problem of Canadian democracy would require nothing short of political revolution. Government itself must change. So he's not even happy with, with the political party changing. Government's got to change. Mm. Many voters can tell you who they like, but might struggle to tell you why. Sadly, this is the limit of the input we get in this system, a choice between people every few years. We can lobby or protest, but our representatives aren't required to listen. Thank goodness, if you think about it. <laughs> uh, better forms of democracy are possible, he says. We can start by changing our elections. During the campaign, the progressive parties promised to pursue electoral reform. 
We've used the first-past-the-post voting system since steam locomotives were high-tech and many modern democracies have already abandoned it. And of course, that was when we only had two parties, so there was no post to be worried about anybody being second or third, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he says the current system favors large party majorities, discourages cooperation between parties, and shuts out independent voices. Listen to what this guy's saying. I, I have to demonstrate how wrong this is. Instead, we should, should, should implement proportional representation and rank ballots, eliminate the influence of money on elections, and start governing by coalition. Oh, uh, worst oh, thing you could ever do. Oh, uh, th- that's, what, that's what all these progressives are about. That's, th- that's what the movement's about. And, of course, Compromise. that means... They're, they're, no, but they're telling a big lie, and it's a lie about ideology. And then he says, this will give us a government more representative of the people's desires, just like Rome, without need for strategic voting and artificial majorities. A diverse collaborative parliament makes better decisions than one dominated by an ideologue, taking a shot at Harper again. Now, this fellow himself, Shepard, He's an ideologue representing a very disturbing and destructive idea. Mm-hmm. For someone like him, it doesn't matter what kind of society we create by voting, so long as voting is the mechanism. As long as we, as some imagined majority votes for whatever it is, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, then it is okay. We could vote for another Hitler, and according to everything I just read from Eric Shepard, that would be okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What argument could one possibly use against his argument or his ideology if the majority should decide to vote for a dictator or kill the aged for the benefit of the young or prohibit anyone's freedom to engage in the profession or job of their choice? He has no possible argument without resorting to some form of ideology. For example, an ideology that holds life, liberty, and property to be the values that government upholds or, as he would prefer, an ideology in which life, liberty, and property are replaced by making government representative of people's desires. Holy cow. Guess what everybody will desire? The other guy's life, liberty, and property. That's the nature of human behavior throughout history. You know, I have to ask the question. If, uh, what was the um, popular vote of uh, Harper's Conservatives in 2011? Did it actually get over 50%? No, I don't even recall. But, you know, let's say it did for a minute. Let's say it was 51% of the popular vote put the Harper Conservatives into power. A person like this, using his own um, arguments, would have to support the decision of the people. He would not go against the decision of the people. Precisely. He'd find himself in a real bind. Yeah, uh, and, uh, but and do, you think, do you think he would do that? No way. Oh, no, no, no. And that's why he's lying when he says he doesn't believe in ideology. That's my point. You know... This direct democracy majority rule argument suggests that we should just put the gun of government into everybody's hands and let them all shoot it out with the side with the most guns that gets to win, right? And and, and Shepard has given no indication that he even knows what ideology is. Like, what is Harper's ideology to which he objects? Was it conservatism? Because for ideological conservatives, Harper was not conservative. You know, Harper was a pragmatist, just like Eric Shepard whose argument in favor of collaboration without the mechanisms of collaboration, which is political parties, you know, in all his protestations about ideology, Shepard never once referred to a single ideology of any sort, most particularly Harper's. He believes in a false ideology, namely that ideology doesn't matter. This is simply not true and never has been. It's not even logical to believe this. Ideology is all that matters, everything that follows from one's ideology. 
In human affairs, ideology is the first cause of all politics, you know, and, and all, po all politics is ideology, which is exactly what it is and has been since the founding of this country and of all empires and civilizations. When Rome rose to greatness, it practiced an ideology that opened trade, welcomed differing cultures, not in the sense of today, and by and large kept the peace. When Rome fell into ruin, it practiced an ideology of cronyism, abandoning well-known Roman principles in favor of the vox populi. At its heart, ideology is all about determining right from wrong, and make no mistake, it is that process that Shepard and other progressives who think like him want to eradicate. The distinction between right and wrong. Yeah. Those things don't matter, goes this kind of thinking, since even people who are completely wrong, self-interested, or even evil, hey, they're still entitled to their proportional say on the issues, aren't they? <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. However, they are convinced that ideology is wrong, though by which thought process or ideology he arrived at that implied conclusion is anybody's guess. Without some f sort of ideology, how can even Shepard ever figure out what's right or wrong? How has he arrived as, had, at his assertion that proportional representation is more representative than first-past-the-post? An argument in favor of PR, uh, you know, anything is one that agrees in mixing right and wrong, good with evil. And one great defect about the PR form of government is that there's no way to hold anyone accountable for what goes wrong or to give credit for what goes right. Another great defect about PR is that things go wrong more often than right. Unrestricted by principles or ideology, the so-called people simply vote themselves government benefits until the state treasury runs dry. And unfortunately, guess what? The state treasury is the people. This was as true in the days of the Roman Empire as it is today. But here's the ultimate contradiction, Robert, and the whole non-partisan, non-ideological progressive view of PR. The very concept of proportional representation demands that there be political party affiliation and structure. The very word proportional as an adjective can only refer to political parties, the very things that embody ideology and partisanship. Mm -hmm. If every candidate was a non-partisan, independent, unaffiliated with any political party, what could you possibly make proportional? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure there would be many progressives who might support, well, make it, uh, you know, proportional on the sexes or on racial distribution or something like that. But here's an even scarier possibility. What if in this imaginary independent and non-partisan governing body, the idea of proportionality was applied to ideas, to ideology itself? That would mean that you would have to vet the opinions and viewpoints of representatives and choose them on the grounds of something like, well, for each seat held by an MP or MPP who thinks that we should lower taxes, there should be an equivalent number of seats held by MPs and MPPs who thinks we should raise taxes. <laughs> and so on with each and every issue. When you get down to the, to the, to the subatomic particles of this, it, it's ridiculous. All of these issues and viewpoints have already been resolved and structured within the party system that they want to abandon. But since there are an infinite number of possible single issues and interests, and only a handful of parties, all of those issues can only be found packaged in the given number of political options you get, which cannot rationally be as numerous as the number of issues. That's just one reason why single-issue parties are generally delegated to electoral irrelevance. If political activists really wanted change, then you have to change your options not your means of voting for the same repetitive option over and over again, expecting some kind of better government out of it. You know, that means a new party that reflects the proper ideology based on reality, reason, self, and consent. And with that, I'll leave you with this thought. 
beware of those who tell you to beware of ideology. They're ideological extremists. <laughs> Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Mr. Hacker is back to see you, and the chairman of the rules committee is with him. I think they expect you to default the contest. Ha 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 ha! Just when I've got it won. <laughs> Mr. Drysdale, at the risk of incurring your disapproval, I owe it to my conscience to make the following statement, which I have typed out for your perusal. Honesty and integrity are the very cornerstones of the great institution of banking, and they are strengthened by the mortar of fair and democratic competition. This trophy is symbolic of that competition. It represents a glittering ideal, and I say to you, Better defeat with honor than victory at the cost of a tarnished ideal. Here, here, Mr. Drysdale. You are a credit to the entire banking profession. That is one of the most inspired statements that I have ever heard. May I, may I have a copy of this? Well, certainly, Mr. Pendleton. Hacker, read those words over and over. By George, they mean something. Yeah, they mean he's found a crack shot.